Romans chapter 13. If you please open up your Bibles to that place. Romans chapter 13. Let's join together in prayer once again. Lord God, we approach thee, O God. We thank thee for this service, this Lord's Day. Come before thee humbly, O Lord knowing that thy word hath power. Thy word hath power. Thy spirit worketh in us, both to know and to do thy word. Lord, guide us and help us now in this time in our nation. May thy word be our stronghold, our steady guide, a lamp unto our feet, in these dark and perilous times, as they have always been, God. But now, Lord, we ask that Thou wouldst teach us that Thy Word wouldst enliven us. Help Thou me, Thy unprofitable servant, to preach Thy Word with power and fluency, for the edification of mine own heart and the hearts of all these thy people. Lord, give us a vision of Christ, a passion for Christ, a desire for Christ. Please, Jesus, every hour, every hour, O Lord, we need thee. Revive and renew our knowledge of such need. How desperate we are as paupers and beggars spiritually. Yet what great inheritance we have in Christ. How rich, how deep, how inexhaustible the power, the armament, the weaponry is that thou hast given us in Christ to fight the flesh, the world, and Satan, our threefold foe. But, O God, we have a threefold God who warreth for us. The triune God of Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, David, revealed to us in thy Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that prayer would be life to us, that preaching would be food, that living would be Christ. Feed thy people now, O Lord. We are dependent upon thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Apostle Paul writes, 
Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything, But to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time... And now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh. To fulfill the lusts thereof. Thus far the reading of God's word. The title of our sermon this afternoon is We Ought to Obey God Rather Than Man. Dear congregation, in the book of Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, Peter and the other apostles are told by the powers that be the Pharisees and the rulers of the synagogue, to no longer preach in that name. They are commanded strictly and straightly no longer to preach in that name of Jesus, the truth. And what is their response? Verse 29, they answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Many a brave heart looks for an opportunity to say such words. To stand upon that truth, looking for opportunities and situations that would present themselves so we could say, it is better to obey God than you. Look no further, O valiant one. The time is upon us. The time is upon us. I do not know if you are aware, but our bosom state, the one closest to us, just west, California, this week, Passed a wicked and satanic order that churches 
already required to be only at 25% capacity. Already required that if they are to be in the building during the service, must wear a mask throughout the entirety of it. It was now put forward this very week that they may not sing in church. They may gather, they may not sing. I don't know how many churches obeyed that today, but it would have been better for them to have obeyed God rather than man. Rather than man. What comes next is preaching, prayers. Incrementalism is dangerous. Step by deadly step, they take and take. Our current government the vast majority of them, makes no qualms and doesn't try to cover up the fact that they're vehemently anti-Christian, hostile to God and the gospel. So it's not surprising. But no longer are they lurking in the shadows, making their little laws that don't seem to have much to do with our faith, but actually do affect it. Now they're coming straight out and saying it. And if you think it will stay in California, you know nothing. It will come. It is coming. Something that seems so distant, so dystopian years ago, five years ago, four years ago, is now actually here. That that blessing of of, of singing praises unto God is taken. It's better to obey God rather than man. In the Bible, there's roughly four or five things, four mostly, that all Christians can agree are commanded in the Scriptures to be done when the church gathers. Pray, read the Scriptures, preach the Scriptures, and sing. One of those was just crossed out in California. I don't want persecution to come. I don't want to be locked in prison or fined or have our church in any way hindered or shut down. But it is better to obey God rather than men. We do not go looking for trouble. We do not go looking for opportunities to disobey the civil government, to bring persecution on ourselves and be martyrs. But martyrs we shall be if necessity bids it. And commands it. Thus the question we should ask at this time, and have to ask at this time, is how should we, as Christians, view the government, and what obedience do we render to the government? Any government. We have to obey God first and foremost in all things. That should be without saying. If we are Christian, Our obedience is both pledged by us and demanded of God. In everything, every sphere of life, he commands our obedience. And we render it to him out of love and gratitude for what he hath done. And obeying God sometimes will require civil disobedience to the magistrate. In fact, to truly love God, honor his law... And the best way to love God and the best way to honor the civil magistrate, to honor the government, 
is to disobey them sometimes. Why do I say that? Because it's not about politics. It's about God, His glory, His commandments, and how He has decided to run the earth. To govern the earth as the true one and only sovereign over all things. We have to disobey the government sometimes to truly honor the government. Why? Because it's God's institution, not man's. Sure, people might have sat down in the 1700s and figured out a general idea of what we'd want this specific country to look like, as other countries have done. But government itself is instituted by God, as our passage tells us. So the best way to honor it is to honor God in it and through it. To uphold the laws of God. Loving God is the only way we can truly love our neighbor. That's what Jesus boiled down all of the moral law to. He said basically all of it is summated in this. Love God, love your neighbor. To love God first and foremost. And love our neighbors secondarily. And if we love God, we will love our neighbors. And the best way to love our neighbors is in loving God first. Because we will keep his commandments, even those that pertain to our neighbors and not directly to ourselves. That's why we uphold his law in all things. Again, the time is upon us. We don't have to daydream anymore about an opportunity to say such brave words that Peter said. It will be here. And it is here for many of our brothers just miles from us. How then do we obey? How then do we put God first and honor God? How do we walk this line and balance? That's why we turn to this text. A few points in our text. Three. Number one, the background and context of Paul's words. The background and the context of Paul's words. Number two, in obeying the civil magistrate, Christians must obey God. So obey God in obeying the government. Number three, the eschatological heavenly mindedness that we should have. Eschatological heavenly mindedness. First, the background and context to Paul's words in this passage. As we know, the book of Romans is divided up. Chapters 1 through 11, doctrine. Doctrine, the fall of man. The universal sinfulness of all men, both Gentile and Jew. That all men are responsible, whether being given the moral laws, Jews, in the scriptures, the oracles of God, or having the law written on their conscience and on their hearts as Gentiles. All men are responsible for their sin. Nobody gets a pass. All have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. Then Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the greater Adam. As we've all fallen in Adam, we are all redeemed in Christ. Then the struggle that the Christian lives through of fighting sin. Recognizing that we are baptized into Christ and risen again as he was risen. To new life. Therefore we should not walk in sin, but should walk in obedience to God. And yet we will always see a battle and a struggle as long as we live in this flesh. Chapter 7. We'll say, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The things that I would, I do not. The things that I would not, those I do. 
Yet there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Then the marvelous election of God, His sovereign choice of sinners, that He will redeem a people, He has a people, and that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and that faith worketh in an unregenerate man's heart to make him regenerate by the sovereign purposes of God, so that he cries out, Jesus is Lord. Then the engrafting and unity of the people of God. Chapter 11. That there is no longer Jew and Gentile, but one true Israel, God's people, made up of all people, groups, and nations, saved by Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 12. How then shall we live? So doctrine, now practice. And in chapter 12, it's very interpersonal and how we should live in the church. And now, chapter 13. Ah, but do not forget, Christian, your duties in the sphere of life. We do not pull back from society. This is where we went wrong. The reason, as I've said for a few weeks now, that we are in the predicament we are in in this country right now is because of the church. It's the church's fault. Shame on the church for the past 200 years. As they've abandoned the gospel, they've withdrawn from society. It goes against what Paul says here. How we are to be in the public sphere. How we are to engage in life as Christians and not withdraw. That's the general context. Background specifically to these words. Caesar. Remember he's writing to the Romans. The Caesar cult. That Caesar was worshipped as one of the many gods. Right here the Roman emperor Caesar. Nero. Worshipped as one of the gods. And what would happen in Rome was that they would carry around an altar. The state officials. With incense and a little fire. And people, as they're going about their daily business, would be brought to them. And they'd pay homage to Caesar. Pinch the incense, throw it in the fire. Caesar is Lord, they would say. And go about their day. They would go about their day. And yet, in Romans 10... Paul says that you must confess, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the confession. That's the confession that's to be made. This was punishable by death and imprisonment to not do this. So it wasn't a little altar call. You come up and you say Jesus is Lord and you pray a little prayer. No, this was real life for them. Reality that had real repercussions. That if you did not pinch the incense, cast it into the flame, and say, Caesar is Lord, but you rather said, no, Jesus is Lord, you could have your head lopped off, or you could be crucified along with your Savior. Punishable by death. Now, just as there are right now, and have been for many, many years, there might have been Christians back then, and there's even some evidence that there was people doing something like this, that would say, it's not that really big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. I don't actually believe in the Caesar cult, right? I don't believe in it. It's just some stupid political thing. I'm just going to pinch the incense, throw it in. I don't believe what I'm saying anyway. Just part of the politics here. I'll go on my way. It's not like they're closing up churches. It's not like they're saying Christians can't worship Jesus. They're just saying, you got to pinch the incense, throw it in. I know Caesar's not God. I know Caesar's not Lord. Who cares? It's not a big deal. It's not like they're forbidding anything. It's not what Paul advocates for, is it? 
says it's heresy, anathematizing yourself, cutting yourself off from Christ, to say anyone is Lord but Jesus Christ. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit, meaning that's connected with regeneration. There is but one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Same now, we have people, "Eh, that's not the big deal. These political things that are happening are not a big deal. These things the churches are doing, not a big deal. They're apostate anyway. Right. That's why it's a big deal. Because it compromises the gospel and our children have to live in this upcoming world. The dilettante pastors and Christians are refusing to interact with, refusing to engage. And thus... The blood of our children and theirs shall be on their hands. This is why, this is why this is serious. This is why Paul even writes about something like this. How to interact with the government. It's a denial of the gospel to obey what was going on in Rome. And it's a denial of the gospel to say black lives matter. It is. Because everything that Black Lives Matter as an organization stands for is anti-gospel, anti-human. It's barbaric. It's wicked and satanic. And yet there's Christian ministers, many well-meaning, Christian people, many well-meaning, that are saying these words, supporting this movement. We will, I promise you, Look back, if there even is a Christian church that hasn't, gone under, hasn't been forced underground, we will look back in America in 20 years and see this as one of the great battles that we had to fight. Just like we look back now, people like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, how they had to fight the battle for the Bible, the battle for creation, etc., etc. This will be looked back and seen. We had to battle critical race theory. Black Lives Matter. Black supremacy. White supremacy. This will be what we are known for. How do we respond? What are we going to tell the future generations? Paul gives us guidance. But we must notice how Paul frames this section. How he frames it. Again, the context. He doesn't simply just list off a bunch of things Christians are to do Politically, quote unquote. But he frames it very intentionally in the gospel and Christ's glory and God's authority, providence, and in Christian gratitude. Because again, verse numbers, chapter numbers did not exist as Paul was dictating this letter to Tychius. So look, chapter 12, starting in verse 17. He says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So again, we're not looking for trouble. We're not trying to stir up trouble. We don't want persecution. But we will live for Christ, come what may. Verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. What is going on right now? Governments telling churches how they may worship, what may be done. And when it's against the scriptures themselves and God's commands clearly put forth to us. We cannot view it. It's a secular, worldly mindset for us to go, our religious liberties are at stake. Who cares if your religious liberties are at stake? A Christian and biblical mindset is this. My Christian duties are being impinged upon. My Christian duties are being impinged upon. This is why he's setting these words in this context. Of letting God avenge. Of letting God defend his church and yourself. For you, as much as life in you, to live at peace with all men. Not stir up trouble, but also not back down. Do that which is good. Be active in serving Christ. He's already in chapter 10 told us how much we have to go out and preach the truth. Now he's saying we must continue to live for Christ. Serve your enemy, and you'll heap up coals on his head. Do good unto him. Allow God to avenge. Allow God to defend. That's how we will overcome evil, by being Christian. Not political, by being Christian, not conservative. And then he goes on at this last chunk of chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. So his specific commands from verses 1 through 7 to Christians on how they are to act towards the government, the civil magistrate, are again framed by living for Christ, serving your enemy, letting God defend you. And then in verses 8 8 through 14, he states that Christians must do all things in light of their belonging to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So it's framed in this light. It's not a political manifesto, quote-unquote. It's a Christian manifesto. The whole second chunk of Romans is practically, how does this work? And that's one of the biggest problems in reformedom, and probably why we're seeing critical race heresy take off in reformedom, reformed churches, is because one of the biggest problems with reformed churches is simply knowing, giving the right answer. We're asked, how does the doctrine of justification, that we're saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves at all, and we're justified in the sight of God, made holy and perfect and righteous before him by faith given to us? How does that impact my life? And then a doctrinal assertion, the one that I just made, is repeated. Great, doctrine. Yeah, you could articulate it correctly. That's not what's necessary. That's not what's effective. That's not what matters. That correct articulation, if truly understood, will lead to correct living. To correct living in every sphere of our life. Every sphere of our life. So again, we can't lift these few verses up out of the text. Say, here's what Paul says the Christians in Rome were to do politically. No, this is how Christians are supposed to live in every sphere. 
And this just happens to cover one of those spheres. Notice also in this context that though he's writing specifically to the Christians in Rome, his words are phrased in such a way, a very, very interesting way and powerful way. Because he knows that the people in charge in Rome would get a hold of this letter, that they would hear it, it would be preached to them. Listen to the phrasing. It's also a rebuke to Caesar and to those in charge. He commands Christians, but he also passively rebukes the government. Look in verse 3. For, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. But to the evil. So you have to say that to the government. It's written to the government of that time in Rome. Rome... You that are killing the Christians, you that are persecuting the Christians, feeding them to lions, refusing to allow them to worship Jesus, you are established to do good and uplift the good and punish the wicked. What are you doing then? God gave you the power that you have to do good, and yet you are doing evil. So it's phrased in such a way that it's a very sharp rebuke. A very sharp rebuke. Civil magistrates are instituted by God. Verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Thus, they don't get to make up how they function on their own. No government gets to make it up. They do anyway. And as human beings, unless they are darkened in their understanding and given over to depravity, they often naturally make moral laws that are in accordance with God's law in many places. It's illegal to steal in most places. It's illegal to kill in most places. It's illegal to rape in most places. It's illegal to defraud in most places. Where does that come but from God's Law written on their hearts and their consciences. But the fact that they're instituted, again, knowing that those in power in Rome would see this, what you have is from God, Rome. God made you. God put you in power. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ put you in power. And yet, you are doing wickedness. You are kicking against the pricks of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The governments of earth, the civil magistrates, are to serve as a guide and a protector of true faith. Not as a destroyer of true faith. Yet what do we have in our government? A destroyer of true faith. By and large. They don't even pretend to not be that. So just like Paul to the Romans, and just like the Romans were then to preach, we can say to our governments, you are for good, not for evil. You punish the wicked, not the good. You uphold the true faith, not propagate and protect falsehood. The fact that they do not do what is right and what is commanded, does, and they neglect it, does not then do away and negate their duty to do so. 
And that's part of our obeying them, is reminding them of this. And yet, what did the church do from late 1800s till now, largely, in America? Withdrew because of dispensationalism. End times delusions. They withdrew. And we are living in the result of that. Second, Christians must obey God in the civil magistrate. Verse 1 again. They obey. We are to obey the governments because God instituted it. Again, if we have a Christian worldview, we don't see this as a secular thing whatsoever. But that God is the one who raises up nations and lays them low. That he is the God of all history. That the Lord Jesus Christ's shadow is cast over the past 2,000 years. That the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, has stood as nation after nation after nation after nation has fallen. God is the institutor of nations. There is a drop in a bucket to him. He laughs at their ruin as they shake their fist in his face. And he blesses nations and he curses nations. So the government is instituted by God. Therefore, as Christians, having a Christian view of things and faith and believing the scriptures, we therefore honor what God has done. We honor what God has done. We obey because God gave it. But notice verse 5. He says, Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Because previous to that, he says that the governments are a minister of God. The civil magistrate is God's minister to execute justice upon the wicked and to protect the, those that are good. And he says, so if you, do, if you do good, you have no reason to fear, but you'll be praised of them. But if you do wickedness, you will have their wrath. And they're instituted to do so. So he says, don't simply obey for wrath's sake, meaning fear of being punished. You don't just obey as a Christian. You don't just obey the laws so that you don't go to prison and be put to death. Rather, you obey the laws of the government because you love God. Just as we touched on a bit last week, slaves are not to just obey their master because it's their master and for their master's sake. But true Christian slaves obey their master because they are obeying God. And they're honoring God. And they're serving God out of a true heart. Not as man-pleasers, but as God-pleasers. So too we, as people living under the civil magistrate, Paul says, are to obey out of love for God. Not out of fear of wrath, but from conscience sake. Conscience sake. Verses 6 and 7, we read that we are to obey in rendering whatever they ask, civically, and honor the office that is instituted, if not the people that are in it. Look at 6 and 7. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon everything. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So if they're asking us for things that are not disobeying God, asking for taxes, etc. That's what customs and tributes he's talking about. He's saying, listen, pay your taxes to, the Rome, to Rome. Give them their tributes. Also give them their honor as people that are in that office. Whatever our view might be politically, constitutionally, is irrelevant, Paul is saying. We can fight for those things, sure. 
But if it's not something that's immoral, against God, we are to obey. And to honor the people that hold that office. For the sake of the office itself. In verse 8, he says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. We are to obey because it's God who has instituted this thing. We are to obey because our conscience bades us to obey, commands us to obey. We're regenerate. We want to honor God. So we're honoring God. And we're to obey for the sake of the greatest commandment. Love God. Love your neighbor. So here he's talking about loving your neighbor. How we operate in the sphere of society as Christians is to be out of a place of love for God and love for the people around us. We are to be a blessing on earth, not a curse. A jewel, not a blight. Not a stain, but embroiderment that beautifies and seasons the whole rather than bringing it down. This is Paul's point here. Owe no man anything but to love one another. That means don't withhold the things that they're asking for. Rather, obey them. That way you owe them nothing. The only thing you'll still owe them is to love them. To serve them. Those around you. In this, he says, the whole law was summated. So because you are Christian... Because you're obeying God, you obey the government over you. But as Americans, it's very easy for us to get that turned around. Very easy for us to get that turned around. Other countries that have, ki- have had kings and queens and stuff for a long time have a much easier idea, a much easier time understanding many of these scriptures. We do not. We struggle with it. Because we try to think too politically, quote unquote. We should be thinking from a Christian view that we have one despot, one king, Jesus Christ. And he rules and governs our hearts because he bought us. So in every sphere of our life, whether it's civically, societally, personally, in marriage, in our job, whatever it is, Christ is Lord of it. That's one of the errors of this lordship salvation stuff that was so popular in the 90s and 2000s. You don't make Jesus Lord. I understand the general sentiment of, of course, you know, yeah, that that statement, make Jesus your Lord and your Savior. Yeah, well, I'm going to recognize him as that. But he's already your Lord. If you are a Christian, he is your king. Crowned in diadems of glory and fiery eyes. Feet of brass, flaming brass. He is your king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we obey because we are obeying our king. Our king. And in this, the whole law is summated. So again, he's framing this, everything in the context of this is in obeying the moral law of God. Not the laws of society and governments. Insofar as they line up with the moral law of God, they are good and should be obeyed. That brings us to our Next and last point. Third, an eschatological heavenly mindedness is an incentive to us. We are in the last times. Paul recognized this as he was writing. We have been since the ascension of Jesus Christ. And things have gotten worse and better at different times. And whatever our view 
eschatologically, meaning our view of the last times, the end times, whether we're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, etc., doesn't really matter in this discussion too much, because Paul's main point here is that you're in the last days. And because you're in the last days, the day is drawing near. The night is almost over. You will have to give an account for yourself and the whole earth as well. Therefore, live to Christ. Gospel living will triumph. Look at the intro, basically, to this section in verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than than when we believed. Paul, again, writing to the Romans, saying, they're under persecution. He knew this. They're having their heads cut off. They're being imprisoned. They're being crucified and fed to the lions for not saying Caesar is Lord, but rather for saying Jesus is Lord. So he's writing to comfort them, and it was probably shocking to them, obey the government. But he obviously can't mean obeying this rule, obeying the wicked rules. But what's his encouragement? It's not pessimistic. It's easy to read this this section right here as pessimistic, as a downer. Wake, awake out of sleep. Time's coming. Rather, it's an encouragement. It's optimistic. Therefore, put on the armor of light, as he says in many other places, when he's talking about the end times being right now and awaking out of sleep. Arise, O sleeper, and let the light of Christ shine upon thee. That's his point. It's a battle cry. It's a clarion call to remember that we are citizens of God's kingdom and representatives and ambassadors of Christ. Not of this world. Not of this kingdom. But of Christ's. It's not pessimistic. It's optimistic. It's a clarion call. To be Christian. That means whatever is anti-Christian, whatever is wicked and against God's law, we should oppose as Christians. We get so caught up and so confused in this discussion because we attempt to bring in too many other categories. If you're a Christian, here's all you need to know. Be a Christian. God's law and the gospel guides you in it. So whatever is counter to the gospel, oppose. Whatever is counter to God's moral law, oppose. Whatever goes along with it and upholds it, praise and obey. And obey. Verses 12 and 13 says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. So what is his point again? Don't get caught up in this world. Don't live as you're a citizen of Rome. But live as though you're a citizen, as you truly are, if you be Christ's, of the kingdom of heaven. Of Jesus' kingdom, not of this kingdom. Therefore, put off all the works of the flesh. Put off drunkenness, reviling, rioting, and excess. Lewdness. Sin. Fight against it. Don't slumber. Don't be drowsy at this time. Because you are Christ. You are Christ. And this is the only thing that will give us the ability to live through this. 
dear Christian, dear congregation, this is it. We are in a perilous time indeed, as we preached on a couple of weeks ago out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Perilous time indeed. A time unlike we've ever seen in the recent past, past century. It's a scary time. It's a perilous time. But the gospel is still triumphant overall. The power of Christ to be the same, though we aren't, as a country, the same. The gospel still stands as the only answer. The yes to man's no. The salvation of the lost. The power to subdue nations and kingdoms and principalities and powers. Because it uplifts Christ, who is Lord above all and over all. Above all, we are to live in Christ, remain in him, and keep ourselves in the love of God. Look at verse 14. Here's the key to this entire section. The crowning verse. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. If all we focus on is verses 1 through 7, and we just have a political theology, a civic theology... We've missed the point. The point is Christ. The point is the gospel. And that, when it is held up, that, when it is lived in and remained in and proclaimed and daily put on, will influence every sphere of our existence. Every sphere. We can't piecemeal Christianity or the Christian life and cut it up and divide it and look at it as, oh, well, what about this piece? You know, we don't have to be as consistent here. We don't have to uphold God's law the same way we overhear that we do over here. No. This is, how God, this is how we got into this mess in the first place. This is where things went wrong. We must be Christian if we are to be Christian. I said that a couple weeks ago. So it's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be found in him and not another. We must be heavenly minded, setting our minds above where Christ is seated. Who is our life? And because we have been buried with him in baptism and raised again, we must then therefore put on Christ, live in Christ, put off the old man, put on the new. You don't have to know a lot about political theory. You don't have to know anything about any of this stuff. What you need to know is Christ. And you'll be led in the way that is true. His word will be a path to thee. You'll know right and wrong because God's word and his spirit testify. That's it. You don't need to know the ins and outs of any of this stuff that's going on. Other than what is evil and what is praiseworthy and good. And that's in chapter 12. He said the same thing in Romans. To praise that which is good. Despise that which is evil. A wicked magistrate, like our own currently, may not have Christ. But we do. But we do. As Christians, we have Christ. He is ours. We are His. Even if they don't know Him. Yet we have Christ as our God, as our King, as our Deliverer, and our Warrior on our behalf. God is a man of war, and He will war for His gospel, and He will conquer if we be faithful, if we put Him on. If we put on the armor of light, as He said. 
So there's a place for civil disobedience. It's when the civil authorities tell us not to worship God. Tell us not to preach the gospel. Tell us not to uphold his moral law. In those places, we say, no, it is better to serve God than men. It is better to obey Christ's law than thine. Cut me limb from limb. Cut off my head and prison me. Shut down our churches and burn them if you so choose to express your wickedness in that way and your hatred for God. But we shall not deny Christ. We shall not back down from the gospel because we have put on the armor of light. That's the context of Romans chapter 13 in this section. It must be understood in this light or we will do nothing but misunderstand it. If we are heavenly minded, as Colossians 3 says, if we are heavenly minded, our minds are set on the things above where Christ is seated, who is our life, then and only then will we do the most earthly good. The more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we do. The more of a blessing we are to the civil magistrates. Because we'll live peaceably with all men as much as, as much as lieth in us. We won't be disruptive and destructive. We'll be obedient because we're obeying Christ. We'll be helpful and loving and a blessing to the societies we are in. Any society you look at throughout history, when it didn't have Christ, it was barbaric, wicked, usually not very advanced. When Christianity came, revival. Revival in learning. Revival in morality and ethic. Revival in political system and art. It's always been a blessing, wherever it went. And when we abandon Christianity, whether by directly denying its tenets and doctrines, or by withdrawing, society goes back to what it naturally is in its natural form. Wickedness. Rioting, drunkenness, lewdness. And all manner of wicked thing. But if we be heavenly minded will be a blessing. If we love God, we will love our neighbor. We make good citizens on earth when we realize that we are living as citizens of heaven. We make good citizens of earth, the best citizens of earth, when we live as citizens of heaven. That's why, dear congregation, in this time, this strange time we are in, this difficult time that we are in as a country, We must have Christ, Christ, Christ. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We must stand firm on the truth. Experientially. Don't just know these things. If you have not cried out recently for God, do so. Go to him. Find him. You need Christ every hour. Every hour. Every moment. Every moment. And if you abide in him as he abideth in thee... You shall bear much fruit. You shall bear much fruit. Here's the answer. Jesus. Here's the answer. Living for Him. Heavenly mindedness. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Making no provision for the flesh. Making no provision for the flesh. That's why in this time we have to continue to say, as those Westminster divines said, Plus lucet domine. More light, Lord. More light, Lord. More of thy face. More of thy goodness. More of a savor of thee and the truths of thy gospel. More knowledge of thy word 
more courage and steadfastness. Or else what are we going to do? We will fail. And we'll be driven out and trampled upon. And we will see our way of life destroyed. The best way is the Reformed way. Why? Because it's the most biblical way. And what is the Reformed way other than this? Living all of life, as Calvin often said, coram Deo as imago Dei. Meaning, before the face of God as the image of God. That's the heart of Christian Reformed experiential living. Living all of life before God. His judgment seat. His piercing eye of discernment. His burning love for us. Demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Do you know that there is power in the Holy Spirit? Do you know? And if you know and you've experienced it before, do you remember it? Go to him who is thy soul's bosom lover. This day, this day, do not waste this Lord's day. Upon your deathbed, you will recount the many Sabbaths that thou hast wasted. The many Sabbaths that have passed thee by in which thou had opportunity. In which thy soul's Husband called to thee, Open my love, open the door. And thou said, But I am in bed. I've dirtied my feet, or I've cleaned my feet. How shall I dirty them again? How shall I come and open the door? Reduce the number of Sabbaths you will regret on your deathbed. Use this one, experience Christ again. Do you think the Evangelii? church that we've grown up in, that we fought against and preached against, is going to give you the tools necessary, the gospel they preach, the Christianity they put forward, will cause you to stand bold and strong in this time? You know it won't. You need a God on your side. A God who is made known to thee in Christ by his power. You must live in light of Christ's victory over our sin over this world. And finally, at the last day, we have eschatological, heavenly-mindedness to understand how to live in every sphere of life, including the civic realm. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we once again come before Thee. We ask, O God, for Thy help to apply Thy Word to our hearts, Help us not to forget it or waste it. The Lord rebuke Satan from taking up that word from our hearts. If nothing else, help us to love thee more. O God, give us wisdom and discernment that is honoring to thee and to thy Son, Jesus Christ, to navigate these dangerous waters that we might not make shipwreck of our faith. Lord, we love thee, we praise thee, in Jesus' name, amen.